Welcome to Life Study of the Bible with Witness Lee, a program brought to you by Living Stream Ministry. Witness Lee, a servant of the Lord for over seven decades on five continents, culminated his ministry with a 21-year, book-by-book exposition of the entire Bible, which he called a life study. This life study is the basis of our program today, which includes short portions of the spoken messages given by Witness Lee. Now, let's join today's life study. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul gives young Timothy a charge, a charge that he would war the good warfare. This charge, he writes, I commit to you, my child Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you might war the good warfare. Many Bible readers and Bible lovers have no doubt been inspired by such heady stuff. But did they really understand what it was that Paul would have Timothy so gallantly fight for and defend? In reading passages like this in Scripture, we need to take great care to get into the full context. In this case, the key to understanding Paul's charge to Timothy is the preceding 17 verses in chapter 1, and those can be well summarized by verse 3. Even as I exhorted you, that you might charge certain ones not to teach different things, nor to give heed to myths and unending genealogies which produce questionings rather than God's economy, which is in faith. Ron Kangas has joined us as we continue to explore this first chapter. Good to have you here, Ron. Good to be here, Chris. It's probably true to say, Ron, that over the years, maybe the centuries, this phrase, war the good warfare, has been picked up by many of the faith and applied in various manners. But I think the key phrase that we see in verse 4 has probably been overlooked about as frequently, hasn't it? Uh, It has, with the result that um, the nature of the warfare here is misunderstood, if it's not altogether ignored, and also the real issue over which the battles are being fought is um, ignored. Today, there's kind of a boom among Christians on books about warfare. Mm -hmm. In a real sense, I find them mildly amusing compared to what is revealed regarding spiritual warfare in the Scriptures. Here in uh, 1 Timothy 1, the warfare is not that that we see in Ephesians 6, but it's actually fighting for God's economy fighting on its behalf, that is, contending for its carrying out through the preaching of the gospel, Mm -hmm. the teaching of the truth, the ministry of life, and fighting against the weapon used by the enemy to thwart God's economy, and that is different teachings. Uh, Different, not in the sense of being heretical, necessarily, but different in the sense of, of not being in line with the emphasis of the apostles' teaching related to the triune God being embodied in Christ, Christ incarnated to be the God-man, dying for our redemption, resurrecting with a body, but also becoming in resurrection the life-giving spirit to dispense himself into us, to make us the corporate expression of God, the church, the body of Christ, consummating in the New Jerusalem. We may have a different teaching in the sense of um, focusing on some matter, some detail, some peculiar point, 
although not heretical, right. which distracts the believers from this. This kind of situation in the sight of God requires entails a good warfare. Mm. There's a complimentary verse we want to add before we join Witness Lee, uh, remembering that in this uh, context we're talking about Paul charges Timothy to charge certain ones not to teach differently than God's economy. And the verse I'm talking about that complements this is in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, And they continued steadfastly in the teaching and the fellowship of the apostles in the breaking of bread and the prayers. It's this teaching of the apostles that's really our focus in our program today. Let's join Witness Lee with this first segment. The charge of the apostle given to his dear spiritual son, Timothy, was altogether concerning. On the positive side, the dispensation of God. And on the negative side, all the different teachings. Now, here Paul says, I charge you to war a good warfare. Why? Because during his first imprisonment, all the churches were put on test. Many were tested out that they were declining. And the decline, the degradation was absolute due to what? Due to the different teachings. Teachings that were different from the ministry. Dear saints, we all have to realize through all the century, all the declines came to the church, came among all the Christians, only had one source. You know what has been that source and still is that source? Different teachings. Teachings that differ from the apostles' teaching, from the apostles' ministry. In Acts, you know, chapter 2, in the beginning of the church life, all the believers keep the teachings of the apostles. The teachings of the apostles were the ministry. What they taught and what they preached was just Christ, the incarnated, crucified, the resurrected, and the ascended Christ as the resurrected life to be imparted into his believers that he may have a church and that we may become his counterpart. We become parts of such a wonderful world. This is the focus of the teachings of the apostles. Ron, the history here, I think, is interesting and important. Not long before Paul writes this letter, he had been uh, released from his first imprisonment. And during that imprisonment, his influence and uh, his presence, of course, among these churches had been withdrawn. And during this time, Many of these other things came in and caused, as uh, Witness Lee just explained, a general decline in and among the churches. This decline has continued through the centuries in history in varying degrees and largely for the same reason, it seems, hasn't it? It is the same reason, and that reason is uh, departing 
from the apostles' teaching. What we're saying is, is that in many ways, the development of Christian thought through the centuries has been uh, in nature a departure from the central emphasis of the apostles' ministry. Of course, orthodox theologies have been developed concerning the person of Christ. Mm -hmm. We appreciate that. Concerning the triune God, avoiding the dual heresies of modalism and tritheism. There has been somewhat of a recovery of the gospel of grace, that eternal salvation does not depend on our works, but on faith in the finished work of Christ. But all of this theological formulation has taken place in a situation of general departure. And the result is that even among the most orthodox of Christians, or those who regard themselves as such, there is virtual total ignorance of God's economy. So one may be a believer, and one may hold to certain truths crucial to the faith, yet not have a clue as to what God's economy is. This points to the tragic fact that there has been widespread deviation from the emphasis, from the focus found in the apostles' teaching, which we described earlier. It relates to Christ as the Spirit being dispensed into us to produce the church, the organic body of Christ for God's corporate expression. This is simply not emphasized today. Rather, a plethora of different teachings as testified by what's on the shelves of any well-stocked Christian bookstore. That's what you have today. A smorgasbord of teachings, but not the main course of God's economy. So that we end up In a sense, a voice crying in the wilderness, come back to the apostles' teaching, come back to the economy of God, come back to the central focus in God's economy. This is our particular commission and burden in this life study of the Bible. Paul goes on in uh, his, his word to Timothy and adds to this strong charge and exhortation the matter of conscience. In verse 19, he says, holding faith and a good conscience. And I've added another verse to complement this, again from the book of Acts in chapter 24, verse 16, also related to the conscience. Because of this, I also exercise myself to always have a conscience without offense toward God and man. Let's go back to Witness Lee. The crucial focus of the New Testament revelation is God's economy. On our side, just to touch the Word, to receive God through the Word, by the Spirit. What is this? This is faith. You see? When you touch the Word, you got infusion, spontaneously, you have something within you working. That is faith. Faith brings you into an organic union with God. All the time, you will be enjoying 
his infusion, and you become one with him. I must tell you, dear saints, this has been lost for centuries. And Paul, when he was writing those epistles in the prison, he indicated Judaism came in, right? A Greek philosophy, Gnosticism, and even asceticism came in. All kinds of isms. So Paul charged his faithful young co-worker. This charge I commit to you, that you met war, the good warfare, to fight for the dispensation of God and to fight against the differing teachings. Today, we must be on the alert. What has poisoned, spoiled the church? This will still do the same thing. We must be on the alert to keep our eyes watching. We will never allow any different teaching. Only the apostles ministry. From the first apostle, that was Peter, down to today. All the proper apostles, they teach and they preach the same one thing. That is God's New Testament economy. Ron, we've somewhat talked about where he came to at the end, but uh, I was somewhat touched by his linking in the first portion there of faith, the real faith, and the organic union as uh, really the kind of essential component in God's economy. How about you? That um, really caught my attention as well. By organic union, we mean a union with the triune God in Christ in the divine life. That union is portrayed in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. The branches enjoy an organic union, a union in life with the vine. According to the New Testament, faith, active believing into Christ as the Son of God, brings us into this organic union because it brings us into Christ. As we come to the Word or are under the proper preaching of the Word, the element of faith, which is God himself, is infused into us. That gives us the ability to believe. And we believe not simply certain objective facts. We believe into the person. This is an accurate translation of John 3.15. Whoever believes Mm. into him... has eternal life. So we believe ourselves into Christ, and that into indicates we're brought into him in the way of a life union. And it is in this organic union, this life union, where all that the triune God is becomes ours in our actual spiritual experience. For the carrying out of God's economy, we must be in this organic union produced by faith, because as Paul tells us in chapter 1, verse 4 of 1 Timothy, God's economy is in faith. It is in the realm of both the objective faith, the contents of what we believe, 
and the subjective faith, our action of believing, it is in the realm of this faith Mm. that God's economy is carried out. We may be for God's economy, but if we are not in faith, nothing is carried out. So we must take care of this matter of the faith that brings us into an organic union. And as we may see, this faith is closely related to having a good conscience. If we have a defiled conscience, a hardened conscience, that will affect our faith. It will be disastrous. So it is not just the right teaching concerning God's economy, but it's the accompanying life-faith union that takes place as a result of it that really Paul is fighting for here. It's not simply the objective teachings that is the truth concerning God's economy, but it's in faith. Right. So we must have the truth, but we must also be in faith, which issues in the organic union. Now in this union, we can experience the divine dispensing for the carrying out of God's economy to build up the church for God's expression. We're going to stay on this a matter of the linking of faith and the good conscience uh, in our final portion. Here's Witness Lee once more. We have to fight the good fight by such faith and a good conscience. Faith, the subjective faith, always goes along with conscience. If you don't have a good conscience, you couldn't have the living faith. If you don't have the living faith, you couldn't have the good conscience. These two are like husband and a wife. Faith is a husband, and conscience is a wife. You see, the two all go together as a pair. And this pair, some has thrusted away. That means they just didn't care for faith and conscience. Then what? They have become shipwrecked. Shipwrecked, this word implies that the Christian life is like a boat on a sailing sea. Sometimes storms come and so forth. Then those who thrust away faith and conscience become shipwrecked regarding the faith. You see, in the same verse, you have two faiths. The first one referring to our subjective faith. The last one, the faith, referring to things we believe. In other words, this is the New Testament God's economy. Ron, here Paul gets uh, very graphic in his illustration of the effect of an improper conscience on faith, this good mental picture of a shipwreck. Why don't you pick that up and apply it in our daily situation? The word shipwrecked has obvious implications. It implies that we are on a voyage. We're on an ocean voyage, not always in placid conditions. Right. There may, in fact, be tempestuous times, spiritually speaking, illustrated by Paul's own experience with his, probably his last shipwreck. He had more than one of these uh, in Acts chapter 27. This shows that when we do not care for our conscience according to the truth, 
and thereby ignore or do not have regard for the connection between conscience and faith, there will be a real leakage. And the result is the subjective faith, that is, our God-given ability to believe, may be seriously affected. Yes. That inwardly there simply is not the capacity to believe ourselves into Christ experientially, to remain in the organic union. Furthermore, when the conscience is really violated, the faith may be weakened in the objective sense. And what I mean by that is uh, one may become very confused or uncertain as to the fundamentals of the faith, Mm. that God is triune, that the Lord Jesus is God in human flesh, that he died for our redemption. So we need to see this connection. I mean, this is the important matter here. Not only that we realize what faith is, which is likened to the husband, now we're changing the metaphor from shipwreck to marriage, and good conscience likened to the wife, but we see the connection. If we want our faith to develop, if we want it to be healthy, we need to maintain a good and even pure conscience in the sight of God and man. If we maintain such a conscience, the outcome will be our faith will be strengthened, will be filled with faith. We should understand this matter of conscience not merely in an ethical way, right? and certainly not in a religious way, but seeing it in relation to God's economy. God's economy is in faith, Faith brings us into an organic union. If we disregard our conscience, we experience shipwreck concerning our faith. Experientially, we lose the organic union. Then there's no more the carrying out of God's economy. The vision of it may become blurred, but at the very least, the application and experience of it are virtually non-existent. One is just left floundering. Yeah at best treading water, at worst being carried along by very negative down currents. And this is the last thing that we want to see happen to fellow believers in Christ. So we'd like to echo Brother Lee's emphasis as he's getting into Paul's spirit, mind, heart, feeling, burden, and emphasis, that we need to focus on God's economy God's economy is in faith, and faith is related to the conscience. We should reject teachings that differ from the apostles' teaching, focus on the apostles' teaching related to God's economy, exercise our faith to hold on to the faith, all the while maintaining a conscience void of offense, thereby living in the organic union for the carrying out of God's New Testament economy. This, I say again, is the burden and also the commission of this ministry. 
so many large things in a good sense in this short book of First Timothy. And perhaps uh, for those who have not been longtime listeners, you've already heard phrases, concepts, language that uh, maybe is new to you. I encourage you, stay with us during these coming uh, weeks as we get into First and Second Timothy because these matters are so, so key and have, as we've already talked about today, been overlooked. Uh, we really believe the Lord and His timing is bringing the reality of the focus of God's New Testament ministry really to the fore, and we feel uh, a portion in that work in this ministry. So I would encourage you to contact us about getting the printed life studies, uh, our toll-free number that uh, you can use for that purpose, one eight 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 life study 888-543-3788. And also, again, remind you of the website that we talked about yesterday, where these messages in print uh, from the Life Study volume are there so that you can uh, download them from the Internet. And that is www.lsm.org. You can find the appropriate links. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow and stay with us, as I said, through this whole Life Study, a very, very crucial Life Study of the books of First and Second Timothy. For Ron Kangas, I'm Chris Wilde. Thanks very much for listening today. Throughout the centuries, the Lord has recovered many truths concerning His purpose and plan for humanity. The recovery version of the New Testament by Living Stream Ministry presents these crucial truths in a format that is easy to understand and study. This faithful translation of the original Greek text includes outlines of each book of the New Testament, over 9,000 footnotes, more than 13,000 cross-references, charts of important truths, and color maps. The New Testament recovery version from Living Stream Ministry is available at Christian bookstores everywhere.